Hey everybody, welcome to Evil Chat number 17. And this is uh, this is going to be one of those ones where it's just me talking, so if that disappoints you, you can uh, you know, go listen to something else. Um, <laughs> but I uh, had some thoughts uh, that have been milling around my head lately, so I'm going to get them out. I don't think this will be super long. But it'll be, uh, hopefully, it'll be interesting, stimulating for you. Uh, but before I get into it, um, oh, it, this is going to be on talent ID and the preparation of young athletes going back to development. But I think everybody will get something out of it. Um, because, of course, uh, I talk a lot about, I talk about that a lot in the context of high performance and elite training and all that kind of stuff. So that's coming up set. But before I get into it, lots of news in the track world. So... Number one, of course, is that Krauser broke the world record. Oh, my God. That was so amazing. Uh, so congratulations to him. Well done. Uh, his dad, I still, I had a few people reach out to me, uh, some educating me on the whole Krauser, um, you know, lineage and all that. You need a, you know, you, need, you know, it's, you know, it's like when I, I bought Game of Thrones. I, I don't know if I said this in the other podcast, but I remember when I bought game of thrones the dvd set it came with a an actual organizational chart of all the families like an actual chart you pulled out so you and that was just when it had the four families at the beginning that's kind of what keeping track of the krausers is like right it's like you know you, like you got to write it down and you know do the family tree just so you can keep them all straight but anyways um would love to interview the dad um mitch i think it is so uh so if you hear this mitch Reach out to me, and uh, if I get your contact, I'm, oh, I did reach out to you uh, or to the audience. I did reach out to him on Facebook, but he he hasn't replied. I don't think he's actually seen it. You know, it gives you that little thing that you look at and, you know, tells you whether someone saw it or not. But anyways, so that's huge news. Uh, the other one is, uh, you know, okay, I know, I'm a throws coach, so it's really what I'm paying more attention to. The girl in the discus, the American girl in the discus at 370 meters. Valerie Allman, I think her name is. Wow. I, you know, I wonder if she's related to the Allman brothers. Because, like, if she is, then she's easily my favorite track and field athlete of all time. No doubt. It's eh, probably not, but I can wish, right? So that was pretty impressive. Um, so the women's discus at the Olympics is going to be one of the best events to watch uh, with uh, uh, the Dutch girl. Um, oh, I, uh, by the way, on the, the, I, I sent a message to Charles Van Comedy, who used to be my boss in the UK, but he's now the head coach of the um, uh, of the Dutch team. And he said he got news of that at two o'clock in the morning, and he could not go back to sleep all night. He was so happy. So, so that, that was that was pretty funny. Um, he's pretty excited about that. So it's good. Um, and uh, yeah, Brian Bluetrick has done a great job with her, man. Anyways, um, so, you know, those two going head to head and whoever else is going to be there, uh, I guess uh, uh, Perkovec or whatever her name is, she'll be there, I think. I don't know. Is she still throwing? I'm not sure. Anyways, and then, of course, uh, really, really mixing it up 
and making things super interesting in terms of what's going to go on in Tokyo is Rudy Winkler, who comes out at the trials and throws, what was it, 8270, 82.71, national record for the for the U.S. Unbelievable. I I love his style of throwing. I haven't I haven't looked at it super closely. I've just uh, you know seen what I've seen on television. Um, haven't really uh, you know gotten a decent video of it and taken a close look at it. I uh, I filled him in Tucson, but I haven't really uh, you know I haven't had a chance to really look at. it. I think I will tonight. Actually, I'll take a good look at that. I mean, he's he's unbelievable. This guy. I just I really like the way he throws, but I don't want to get too deep into that right now. So. I'll just say this for now, man. That was that was one hell of a throw, and uh, it would be so great to see an American win the men's hammer, and uh, there's a really good chance they're going to win the women's hammer. So, it, it, I mean, how unbelievable would that be if the Americans went, uh, took both the men's and women's hammer at this Olympics? That would be, that, that would be unbelievable. I would be, yeah, that would that's that would be great. So there's lots to. Um, there's lots to look forward to in the throws. Oh, and get this. Here's some big news. It's uh, So remember I talked about, you know, some of the more, uh, in the last podcast I mentioned some of the more exciting things, you know, and I thought, you know, and I even more so now I think Brian Kra- Ryan Krauser is the most exciting thing going on in the sport. I mean, to me anyways. But he's kind of broke the world record now, so it's like he's done it, so, you know. Another really exciting thing is that Lawrence Okoye is back. And if you don't know who Lawrence Okoye is, Google his name. Lawrence Okoye, O-K-O-Y-E, I think. Anyways, uh, I knew him quite well when I was in the UK. And he's being coached by his old coach, uh, John Hillier, in uh, in the UK. And Zane Dukeman, who was a training partner of his before. Really brilliant dude. Um and is working in Qatar now uh, at Aspire. And so, um, anyway, so they're going to be on the podcast, those two, Zane and Lawrence. So I'm just trying to set it up now. So that'll be pretty interesting when that comes out. So those of you who are into throws, and, and Lawrence's story is incredible. Like, I mean, it really is incredible. You don't have to be a throws fan to be, a fa- to be, uh, to be entertained by that. It's nuts. And, oh, God, I can't wait to talk to him. I mean, I just, he was one of my favorite athletes when I was in the UK. I got to know some great, great people there. I got to know some great athletes. But Lawrence, um, Lawrence was right up at the top of the list. You know, well, of course, my own athletes. But Lawrence, uh, Goldie Sayers, too, who was, she was a, she was a, it's a sweetheart. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Anyways, I could go on and on. So, enough of that. Um, <clears throat> so, let's get on to the topic of this podcast today. So it is, what's the date here? It is June 23rd. There's lots going on. You uh, Americans are having their uh, Olympic trials right now. I think it's a day off today. Um, that's going on all, all over the world, different nations and this and that and the other thing. Um, so it's all exciting time. But for me, I just wrapped up the high school season because I was coaching in a number of different high schools here in, uh, in Chicago. Um, it was very interesting, and I got to, and this is kind of what's leading me into this podcast, but first of all, I loved it. It was like, I was surprised at how much I, I loved it. Um, I'm really glad I, uh, 
you know, it, 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 me working in these high school, I worked at, I was helping out in three different high schools. The one I originally talked about, uh, I, you know, didn't have a lot of athletes at it. And there was another coach there. And I talked about him earlier, the pastor, Jason Pankow, great guy. Uh, and then I ended up working at another school, a uh, Latin school, and Lane, which is probably the biggest school, I think, in Chicago, like 4,000 students or 4,500 students. And I, and I just was working with some great athletes. And a couple of them I'm coaching through the summer, which is uh, I'm really excited about. It's really good. I really, really loved it. It was great. Um, you know, so anyways, it was, it was lots of fun. But, man, it was an eye-opening experience in a lot of ways. Um, I haven't coached at that level like that in a long time. Um, just with the different athletes, I was really more of a, you know, I'm going to go back and do it again next year, but I'm going to get way more into it. Um, I was more of a kind of just kind of hung out and coached technique this year where, where asked and, uh, I, I, I wasn't at any school, like every single day I was just sort of helping out. And so, so it was just kind of, uh, it was a little bit ad hoc, but just, just the way it played out. But you know, I got I got to see the system. I went to a state championships, the girls' state championships, which Latin won, which was really cool to be part of that. That was really neat. Uh, the head coach at that school, Dan Daly, does a really good job. Uh, so I really, you know, I really liked working under him. Uh, so it was really, really good. And you know, the last week or two, a couple, you know, some things have happened. You, you know, I put my kid into a camp uh at the last minute one of these ymca camps i'll talk about that in a sec but anyways it, it, it's and it's just my head's been thinking a lot about uh traditionalism and you know comparing that to where, where i see it in the real world and comparing that to what we do uh in sport and anyways point is this like so i've been living here for two years now in the u.s and I love Americas. Like, I really love America. And this is my favorite place I've ever lived. I don't know if I've said that yet on the podcast. I may have said it to a guest, but I mean, it, it really is. I've lived in a lot of places. My wife jokes every four years we move, although this time we're not moving in four years. I can guarantee you that. But, and this is my favorite place I've ever lived, including the places in Canada. I got to say, I love living here. I love Americans. Um, my neighbors all around me they could all i mean they could all be canadians i love them they are just great um <clears throat> you know then the 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 i the the stereotype that the world has about americans i mean i just don't see it that often i get it like i get where it is and i get all of that and you know i it's not entirely fair that's for sure but you know um i know that uh you, you know like Americans are kind of, they're like Brett's, right? Like you love them. They're really cool. You get to know them. I mean, some of my closest friends are Americans and Brits. And collectively, they're all a little bit fucked. So, which is, you know, you can't really say that about Canadians, but I, I got to say, Canadians is probably the one country in the world that you could actually say that about, or some Northern European countries. Uh, we're fucked up in different ways, but, you know, but individually, I love Americans. I mean, they're just, they're great. So, but anyways, the point is this, is that I, you know, I took my kid to this YMCA camp, my youngest, Masterwall, and um, uh, just a couple of days ago, and I was, 
it was a long drive. It was in Michigan, so I had to drive like two and a half hours. I dropped him off there. And it was like, you know, it's like that scene in the parent trap. Remember, I, for those of you old enough to know, the original parent trap where, you know, it's it opens with, uh, you know, they're dropping their kids off at camp and it's just wild and crazy. Everybody's super excited. That's exactly what it was like. It was really neat. And like I've sent my kids to summer camp before in Canada, not quite the same thing, right? Americans have this way of, this traditionalism and a way of preserving it and everything it's just it was just like you just walked around this place it was just it, i don't know it, it's kind of hard to put into words but it was just i was just really glad i got my kid into it and you know and i had two and a half hour drive back to think about it and i started thinking about that and about you know, a lot of some of the practice, coaching practice I had seen um, in, um, you know, while I was uh, coaching these high schools. And I'm not saying that what, you know, with the examples that I'm going to use or imply here is not necessarily in the high schools I was coaching at because I was all over and there's an, I saw this in a number of different places, talked to a number of different coaches and went to a bunch of meets and saw different things. So, but also on the way back, on this drive, um, I was listening, I, I, I'm listening to, and you're going to think this is way out there in terms of a reference, but I was listening to blueprint for Armageddon again by Dan Carlin. And, and this, which is the, uh, the podcast that Stu and I talked about. I've been listening to that, uh, with my oldest son, uh, we're about, we're in the second, uh, second podcast of it and and i agree with Stu. it is the greatest podcast that is out there there's nothing even compares to the job that this guy does in terms of the quality that he puts out this blueprint for armageddon is about world war one it's a history podcast and it's it's 24 hours long i think it's 24 23 or 24 hours long I mean, get it. It's, you know, I mean, when I first listened to it, it was a long time ago. Stu put me onto it. Um, it was free, but now, you know, you pay like 15 bucks. I mean, it's worth 10 times. That. I'd pay 150 bucks for this easy. And I got back into it because uh, my oldest son expressed an interest in, um, or something came up about World War One, and we talked about it. Oh, I know what it was. I was listening to another podcast in the car and it came up and he was listening to this he's got this is unbelievable and i said well if you think this is unbelievable you got to listen to the world war one when blueprint for armageddon and so uh so i bought it and he and he is just enthralled with this right it's just it's so well done anyways um about it in the second podcast about an hour and 20 minutes into it somewhere around there he Carlin discusses the traditional values of wartime at the time. And he talks about soldiers, uh, you know, uh, like the French soldiers, who at the time, it, like at World War, you know, when, when World War I started, it was, it was a completely different war than any war that had come before it. A lot of that had to do with technology. And, and not every country was sort of with the times. And he talks about like the French not wearing helmets and, and, uh, you know, wearing red pants. Can you imagine going into a trench warfare um, and wearing red pants, like, and white gloves and a white hat with no helmet? Like, you're just asking for it, right? But anyways, and, you know, like, when the, when the firing started, you know, like, they, you know, like they wouldn't 
find cover and hide. I mean, it's just not the way you did it, right? There were these values in terms of fighting war, and they stuck to them, and or at least initially, until they got started getting totally slaughtered. And the Germans, of course, were, you know, more advanced technologically. They had gray uniforms that were in camouflage. And anyways, um, but um, you know, those, those are just the values of the day, and that's what they believed in, and. And even even there, he he talks about the generals. There were generals at that time that actually actually believed that war was necessary in order to maintain the values that could only, in their minds, could only be found during war. Now and then, I you know I'm driving back. I'm thinking about all this stuff, and I thought you know that would make a good metaphor to a podcast on traditionalist training ideas versus modern ones. Not that you know so much better one is so much better than the other modern is so much better than traditionalist there's a lot of good things about traditionalist training ideas and attitudes and values but i thought you know it just sort of got me thinking about this um and you know i'll get to the talent part in in, in a bit <laughs> um i've said many times before that an important part of the development of a coach is to go and hang with high performance coaches because you need to see not only how the modern coach coaches, but you also need to see how the modern athlete trains, right? It, you know, and, and there's a lot of variation at the high levels, you know, in terms of traditionalism versus modernist types of methods and training and that, um, you know, so that's it's all assuming that you have a high performance coach who uh, or athlete that is actually training in a modern quote unquote way. But the point is, is that you know, if you don't know what you're working towards, then you know, how are you going to prepare an athlete for it? So I I could I would compare what Carlin describes in the podcast. Uh, you know, sort of the uh, you know the old values of war and those running up into the new values or the new technologies and the new approaches um you know and of course you know that was a disaster um or at least for the one side uh initially um and i and i compared to the differences in training approaches today uh, between traditional coaches and athletes uh versus coaches and athletes who adopt a more a more modern or a more modern influenced approach. Now, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I think the best coaches have more, uh, more of a modern approach, but also can retain a lot of sort of traditionalist values. Okay. In a lot of ways, you know, I don't think it's, it's, I don't see any of this in black and white terms, but I will say that, the latter, the more modern uh, approach, you know, they train and operate on a whole different level. They train smarter. They train more systematic. They train more uh, intelligently. They just do. Um, they understand training better. They know that, you know, quality, uh, uh, strategy, and precision in training is what's going to lead to success rather than the ability to just simply blindly grunt out repetition after repetition. Um, or even being, you know, or being able to white knuckle it through pain or injury. And that is the big, big difference. Being tough, quote unquote, has changed. It no longer means that one has to suffer through pain or injury 
or outlast anyone on the field or in the weight room. It doesn't mean that you have to blindly follow what everyone else does or what everyone else before you did. Um, it doesn't mean you have to train more days or more hours than your opponents or, or anything like that. Today, and, and not that you, you have to train shorter either. Today, being tough means something else. It means preparing and executing in, a, in an intelligent and systematic way way not that it has to be all that complicated but you gotta have some kind of uh, path that you you know that's leading you somewhere and nowhere is this more important than in developmental training for athletes that are in particular in middle and high school as they as they divide them here in the u.s yeah i I say this to athletes all the time. Like, if you want to show me how tough you are as an athlete, don't show me how you can, you know, uh, train through pain or, you know, any of that bullshit. Like, it, it, if you want to show me how tough you are, execute. Nothing more, nothing less. Execute and execute under pressure, okay? In an environment where just about everything is going against you. If you can pull that off, to me, that's being tough. It's not, you know, anybody, I mean, anybody can survive pain. Like anybody can get used to, you know, the discomfort uh, of training. Anybody can get used to that. Some people don't handle it, sure. And some people love it. But to me, that's not really, it's, it's that's kind of irrelevant when it kind of, or it is irrelevant when it, when we're talking about performance. Let me, let me paint a scenario for you. Okay, um, as somebody who, and I'm, you know, not uh, trying to paint myself as somebody who's been everywhere and done everything, but I have kind of been around, and as I've said many times, I have this bizarre career path that has given me a lot of experience that um, I like to use in terms of my examples and share with coaches, particularly at the developmental developmental level. And, and I think this podcast actually might be good for parents as well. So if you know some parents that, you know, uh, need to hear this, send them to it. Um, but let me paint this scenario for you. <clears throat> so we have an Olympics coming up, right? And for most people, that means that you'll be watching an athlete uh, on TV, um, or on a screen during their performance and competition, which to you is when the competition starts. And you know you see them come out in the stadium, they do their event, and then they then they go away. Okay, um, and you know that is when an athlete needs to be tough, quote unquote, in competition. All right, uh, rise above themselves or whatever it is. Okay, but which I don't agree with. Uh, in and of itself, and we'll get into that at some point in this as well. But anyways, um, no, I'll talk about it right now. You know, I mean, I say to kids all the time, you, know, you don't need to ride, rise above yourself in competition. Competition is about executing. It's about executing under pressure. You let the natural energy of the competition, the arena, everything going on, you let that help you rise to it a bigger performance you don't need to add to it because 99 times out of 100 you try to add to it you're just going to get overstimulated you know you're going to try too hard and you're going to you know i always say to them uh in a, in a lot of cases 
105% effort will give you a 90% result. A 95% effort will give you a 110 result, 110% result. Okay. But anyways, back to my example. So, you know, you're at the Olympics, right? Or you're watching the Olympics and, and the athletes are in the competition. Um, and, you know, to you on a screen, that's when, you know, that's when it is. It's when they're in the stadium, that's the competition. But somebody who's been to it and knows a little bit about it can argue that it starts, the competition starts way before that. Uh, minutes, hours, I mean, even, you could probably even argue days or weeks before that. So I want you to just imagine for a moment that you're an Olympic track and field athlete and you're at the games, okay? And it's the day of the competition. Here's what, and we're, this is where I'm going to start from. But like I said, you could, some people would argue this starts even before this, but here's what your day of competition is probably going to look like. First of all, you're going to wake up and you're going to wake up in a bed that you're not used to, uh, in a room that's probably really nice, but it's really, it's a dormitory and you probably have a roommate. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll get up and you're going to want to eat. So you're going to go to the to the dining hall, the cafeteria, which is, you know, these days, these things are massive, massive complexes and they, and they have, you know, and the, and the food is, you know, I mean, each Olympics or world champs or games, whatever the hell it is, you know, they're always competing against each other to have better and better food. So that's, you know, the food is used these days is usually really, really good and it's limitless. And that can be an issue with a lot of people, but anyways, so you're going to go to the cafeteria. Um, if you're simply qualifying, uh, that day, then it's probably going to be early. So you're probably going to be there early in the morning, right? Which means less people, less lines for food and all that. But it also means that it's most likely that your competitors are going to be there as well. And these, yeah, they're big places, but you know, you're going to start running into them. This is your day of the competitions. You're going to see them. You're going to see what they, you know, what they're doing. And you know, it, it, and for some people, this is, can be a bit, you know, this is when some of these games or the mental games can, can they can begin then. Um, there's less people. If it's early in the morning, it's going to be less people. They're going to be easier to spot. Not a big deal, right? Well, might not be, but it just might set off some athletes, especially if they're new to that process. And then, you know, assuming that all goes well and, you know, you've had a great breakfast, then depending on your timing and, you know, all of this is on a strict timeline down to the minute. Um, and you'll, real, you'll realize why in a moment. Um, then you're going to head to the stadium for your competition at some point. Might not be right away. It might be later, you know, whatever. But you're going you're gonna to have to go. And you're going to be on this timeline. Uh, on some teams, the more organized ones, and the British team was unbelievable this way, um, that means that you're going to have to go through some kind of a, a checkpoint that's been set up for your team in or near your residence where a team leader organizer is probably going to, you know, make sure you have, before you leave the village or before you leave the residence, you're going to check everything, make sure you have everything so you don't get there and, you know, realize you've forgotten something critical that either won't get you in the stadium, you know, so they'll want to know that you have your accreditation, which is your ID, because you can't go anywhere without that. Do you have your competition shoes? You have your bib number? You have your, you have your uniform, right? Athletes that are, um, you know, potential medalists, and they make sure every athlete has this just 
You know, they're going to want to make sure you have your metal uniform with you. And you, so there's all these little details that factor into this. And, um, you know, and, and, and all of this, all of these little points I'm going to bring up, they don't sound like much until you look at them in their entirety. So, so then you're going to go to the bus or the shuttles that are going to take you to the stadium. And again, because everybody has to be there roughly at the same time in your event or your sport, guess who else is probably going to be on that bus? Yeah, it's the same guys or gals that you saw in the cafeteria, your competition. So everybody gets on this bus and their coaches and whoever else. And so everybody gets on this bus and sometimes they can be quite quiet and, you know, and there's, it's more than one bus. There's a whole bunch of them. And so it's not like everybody's on one bus, but you know, it, it, it can happen that you, uh, you know, they're there it's, again, might not be a big deal. might be a big deal. Then you're going to get to the warm up track. Okay. So the warm up track is, it's a sec in my sport. It's a second track that's built outside the stadium. You almost never see it on TV. Um, and it, you know, and it's where, it's where the coaches and athletes actually spend most of their time in terms of training and, and getting ready for competition. Um, and for a lot of athletes, the warm-up track is where a competition is won or lost because there's all kinds of bullshit, all kinds of crazy, crazy shitness that can go on on a warm-up track right especially for athletes that are that are new to this whole process and coaches um for my uh, for example in my in 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 the event group i coach the throws some athletes will throw as part of their warm-up there okay because it's basically it's a it's a full track with full facilities you can throw you can you know whatever you can do in the stadium you can do there as well um some athletes choose to use to warm up there some athletes don't we'll go through that in a minute um but, uh, you know, I've seen many an athlete leave their best throws on this warm-up field. They do too many. It's starting to feel good. Uh, so, you know, they're, 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 either, they're either trying to psych out their competitors who are all around watching, who may or may not be warming up there, or they're simply trying to calm their own nerves. Um, and, you know, and you would think, well, if you're throwing far there, why, why wouldn't you not throw far in the stadium? Well, so I go through this, you'll understand why. Um, and you know, some don't warm up at all either. In the in, in the throws, a lot of the a lot of athletes don't warm up, especially in its, if it's in a very hot environment, because they're going to spend forty five minutes in the stadium, which we'll go go through in a minute. Um, and you know, sometimes they do that for that reason because they don't need to. They're going to do it in the stadium. Sometimes they're just trying to mind fuck their competitors. Um. Some athletes are loud on the warm-up tracks, just draw attention. Some are quiet. Uh, some have entourages, and some are completely alone. Uh, it's a really weird place with a really weird vibe at times. But either way, uh, if the games have not already started for you, then they're then they're about to very soon, and by now they they're almost surely about to. Then. At a certain scheduled time, and this is down to the minute, you enter the first of what are called, uh, or or they're usually called call rooms. Uh, the first one's usually on the track, so it's a tent. And this tent sits, you know, uh, right to the exit of the of the uh, uh, of the warm up track, and it's it's you know 
in close proximity to the stadium, but you, but once you go into this room or the, or into this tent, that's it. You're cut off from everybody. You're cut off. The only people that go into this are you and your competitors. Your coach can't go through there. Team officials usually can't go through there. Um, you're on your own. Okay. Um, and you know, and who's there? Of course, you know, same people that were at breakfast, same people that were on the bus, same people have been on the warm-up track. So now you've, you've potentially spent hours around your competition already. Uh, you know, except this time you're alone with them. You don't have your coach there to, you know, if you and you know, again, for experienced athletes, this is no big deal. They can actually, you know, uh, play this up to their advantage. But for inexperienced athletes, it can be, it can be, you know, quite heady stuff right um and some athletes you know young athletes actually you know the energy of it actually brings them up it doesn't psych them out they actually feed off of it and so you know it's different for everybody uh but it's about to get ramped up big time okay so uh there's no one in this tent but you you your you your competitors and officials uh as i just said it's just you and them um and in this tent, they do your final check. The officials go through your bag. They take out stuff that, you know, you're not supposed to have. Like, you know, it could be anything, a phone or whatever. It, it all depends on the meat. Uh, they check your accreditation, your bib number, and then you sit. There's really not much to do in these things. And sometimes you'll be sitting in it for 15 or 20 minutes, and you can't really move too much in them. They Once you're in there, they don't let you out. So, you know, of course, for someone who's already warmed up, then they're just sitting there, right? Uh, another reason why some people don't warm up. Um, next, then they call you into the stadium. And, and again, this is not, a, you know, this will be right down to the very minute. This is all planned out. And, and they have a big board out front that tells you exactly when you're going to, when you got to go in, when the last moment you can go in and when you're going to be taken to the stadium and, and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, so they call you in the stadium, except they don't take you into the competition area at that point, but more like they take you into the bowels of the stadium. So you end up going into the inside. Usually it's inside the stadium. And this is where another call room is. It's a second call room. And in this call room, in uh, and, and these days, these things vary a bit. But traditionally what they are, they are actually a room inside the stadium. And they're usually not a big room. And they line you up uh, back at the track in the tent and they line you up and they, and they walk you down, you and all your competitors, everybody that's in your flight or in your heat or whatever it is. And they walk you down, uh, all together. Usually, you know, and everybody sort of walks quietly in single file. If you know somebody, you, you, you know, you might be chatting, but at that point it's just, you know, everybody's sort of got their heads into what they're doing. They're carrying their bags and, and, uh, you know, sometimes these, you know, that's usually through some kind of tunnel. The, the, the walk is protected so that, uh, you know, it's got some kind of cover on it. So the media can't be, you know, isn't bothering them or, you know, it's at this point you, you, as throughout this whole process I'm talking about, you, you get more and more isolated. Okay. So you do this. And sometimes this walk is long. Like it's not, it's not, it's not 20 meters. Okay. It, Sometimes it could be a couple hundred meters before you get to the other call room, depending on where it is. Uh, and that second call room is usually very quiet uh, as they're doing the last minute. You know, you're basically just sitting there waiting for the heat before you or the event before you or the flight before you to finish. And then they're going to take you out and you're going to do your last minute warm up there. Okay. Um, it's deep inside, as I said, it's deep inside the architecture of the stadium. So if you haven't had a close eye, 
a close-up eyeball-to-eyeball look at your competition by this point, if by some chance, you're going to get it now because there's no, you know, everybody's very kind of packed in. Kind of, t- I, I don't want to overstate how tight it is, but it's, you know, there's, you know, and they they've really got tabs on you now. In these days, they inside these stadiums, they'll actually have a small a small track straight away that. Uh, athletes in the sprints or in any event really can go out and do a last minute um, acceleration or do some drills or whatever it is. So you're not completely confined to the room usually at all, though it depends on the event. Now, and usually if you're inside a room, you don't really hear much except (laughs) when somebody does something in the stadium and the crowd goes nuts. Because remember, you're about to enter a stadium that could have upwards of 80,000 people in it, right? Um, and if someone does something exceptional, you're going to hear it and the place starts to rumble. So imagine that you're sitting in this quiet room. All of a sudden you hear the crowd start to roar. This is when you really start to you know, feel like you are going into something, right? Um, you know, and, and you don't know what it was. It could be, was, was it the heat? before you was did 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 uh, you know did somebody in the in the heat before you run a super fast time you know and your head can start you know and you you have no idea of knowing right uh, or was it a throw that a competitor in the flight before you did and you know what was it like you know who was it this is all the shit that can run through your head um now the reason, as I said, sometimes I'll have a track out there uh, for athletes to do last-minute accelerators. The reason they do that, started doing that, is because when, when you actually go into the stadium, depending on your event, when they call finally call your event and they walk you out there, um, then you like when you get out there, you you only have about five minutes. If you're in a if you're in a sprint event or a, like a a track event, a distance or a sprint event, you, you, you only have about five minutes before your race goes. You got enough time to do a couple of starts and you've, this is where, this is where you're starting to see them on TV. Okay. Depending on what the coverage is like. Um, and so, you know, it's only five minutes and then, um, you know, and then it's, it's over. Okay. Uh, in field events, well, so throws, jumps, it can be, it's, it's usually around 45 minutes. You're out there for 45 minutes before the competition actually starts in your competition area, which you're not allowed to leave without an escort. So if you've got to go to the bathroom, it's a bit of a deal. But And if you're in the, some events like the pole vault, it's, it's 90 minutes. You're out there for a long, long time. Imagine you're standing at 45 minutes in front of 80,000 people. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it does take a bit of getting used to for some athletes. And, you know, that uh, can be, a, again, a bit of a, a mind screw. Um, that's a lot of time to be standing relatively alone in front of a huge crowd of people. And during this whole time, you're only going to get two attempts at a warm-up. That's it. It's usually what they give you in all the field events. It's rare that you get more. So you got 45 minutes to sort of just sort of sit there and, you know, uh, if you're prone to thinking negatively, well, then it's gonna it's gonna wrap up. If you're if you feed off of that kind of energy, well, then that's gonna be a good thing for you. Um, and then after that, competition starts. So this the whole process of is has all these stages to it, right? And all these uh, you know ways that you could you could conceivably prepare for it, right? You got to 
the bus ride, you got the warm up track, you got the warm up on the track, you got you got the the call rooms, the wire, you know, all of this. Okay, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, the whole process is sort of like being in kindergarten and going to the zoo, right? Except this time you actually end up in the lion's den. You actually, <laughs> at the end of it, you actually get fed into it, right? So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, okay, boys and girls, everyone check in now. Is Johnny here? Yep. Billy here? Yep. Okay. Stay in line, everybody. Don't get lost. Listen to us. Sit here. Wait. Okay. Get up now. Come on, let's sit down. Okay. Uh, we need to check your bag. Oh, you can't have that in here. Uh, we're um, we're going to have to take that from you and you'll get it back after. And okay, now get up and we're taking you out now. And then when they take you out there, that's it. You're alone. Okay. I, I you know, and I often tell athletes when I'm, when I've been, when I've been on t these types of teams, you know, and I've been responsible for say the throws and an athletes about to go in there. If they're new, I will have a talk with them prior to them going in or maybe the day before. And I'll remind them that, you know, okay, look like past this point, you're on your own. And, but just remember, this is a bit of a philosophical thing. I'll, I'll say, just remember, you're not really going in there alone. You're going in there with everyone that's, you know, your coach, everything you've done, everybody that supports you, you know, and I try to, I try to get that in their head so that if they do get in there and they feel overwhelmed, they can, they can sort of have that to lean on. Right. Um, coaches, you know, in most events in the field events, coaches will get a special seat in the first few rows. It's really hit and miss whether you're going to be able to actually communicate with your coach during the competition. You know, a lot of times you really don't want to anyways, you know, you shouldn't, hopefully you won't have to. Uh, but some athletes like that, some athletes don't. So, um, you know, so that's, that's the whole process. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, this isn't exclusive to the Olympics or, or other big events like world champs. It starts earlier than that. NCAA does a version of this national age class champs. I, I don't know. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're from a different sport. I'm sure, you know, the higher up you go, the more complex this, this preparation for major competition gets. Okay. The only difference between, the levels is the amount of complexity with which it's it's organized and the number of people that are going to be in the stands okay now what has all this got to do with talent and talent id talent identification well in my sport at least and many and you know all olympic sports and and even professional sports and it's a little bit different because in professional sports you're going to be going through that on such a regular basis, if you make it to a high level that you, you, you just naturally get used to it. Uh, but not my sport because Olympics is once every four years. World champs is once every two years. There are other events, as I said, you know, uh, but they, it's not like you're doing it week in and week out. But the point is this, is that this is the process that you're preparing your athletes for. This is it. So, you know, honestly, does does this sound like a process that lends itself to an ad hoc training preparation to just, you know, throwing things together or, you know, uh, mindlessly doing, uh, you know, what in terms of a coach from a coaching perspective, mindlessly just applying programs that, you know, you did as an athlete without even thinking about, you know, uh, you know, the modern, um, 
the modern experiences or pressures that an athlete is going to have to go through? Of course it doesn't. And while there may be a lot of different approaches to preparing an athlete for such competitions at, at, at a higher level, high performance or elite level, it, it's pretty hard to find a coach that isn't, that isn't at least looking at the situations with their athletes and saying to themselves, how can I do this better? Okay. You know, and they may have elements of their programs that are, you know, tr from, from traditionalist approaches. I have them in mind, but traditional traditionalism itself it's slowly being kind of left behind in favor of a smarter more systematic approach and this is what is so difficult to get across to or to coaches that are preparing younger athletes if they have the talent to get there and even if they don't have the talent to get to the Olympics. I mean, they're going to go through this at some point if they, you know, if they, if they compete in college or the NCAA or something like that. But the problem I see mostly in a lot of developmental training programs is that so much is based on traditionalism. Some of that is good and necessary, especially in the sense of team building and creating a successful environment. And I mean, Americans are the, the greatest at that. Um, but a lot of it isn't right. Like a lot of it isn't good. We, these days we just simply have a better understanding of training and what to do with younger athletes. And we have more proof than ever, um, you know, that there, there's more rational, better approaches to, uh, you know, to preparing these kids, whether, you know, whether they have talent or not, or, you know, um, here's another way to look at it. Where does mindless overloading, training through injury, or just winging it fit into any of this in that scenario I described? It, it doesn't. Unless, of course, you're planning on going into a major championship injured or preparing for failure. And if that's your plan, then, you know, contact me. I have an abdominal training machine that, uh, that I've invented that I will sell you at a uh, at a very uh, reasonable bulk rate. So what has this all got to do with talent identification? Well, you know, at the lower levels, so at, or at the younger levels, the, what I just talked about, about where these, you know, where these traditional attitudes sort of fit in, they, they, they haven't learned this yet. They haven't learned that it doesn't fit in. And quite honestly, in a lot of cases, I'm not sure they're ever going to learn it. And, Remember, I'm not trying to, I'm not beating up on anybody specifically here at all. Um, whether it's Americans, I mean, I've seen this done, this is done just as much in Canada as it's done in, in, in America. And it's probably done just as much, if not more in Britain. And those are my three big experiences. But, 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 but remember this, you know, this is coming from someone who comes from an environment where talent can't be wasted because you can't afford to wait for the next big talent to come along, right? Um, so I put this out as advice, not as, you know, um, you know, I'm not trying to rant and uh, get on a soapbox here. You know, and it, when it comes to Americans, you know, let's face it, Americans is the best top country in the world in athletics. They always, pretty much always have been uh, across the board or uh, overall, they will continue to be and, you know, and they have a good system in a lot of ways in terms of youth development.
okay? But, you know, from, for, from someone, like I just said, who can't waste talent, you know, I just see it a little bit differently. Um, but honestly, I, I, I'm not sure this problem can really be fixed, at least on a large scale. Um, and it's not going to get fixed anytime soon in any kind of a, you know, any kind of a widespread manner. Um, I think that there are just those out there who are going to bury their heads in the sand and continue to do what they did as what they were taught as athletes back in the day. You know, they were probably successful to some level, um, you know, on a blah, blah, blah. You know, the stereotype I'm talking about. That's such bollocks. To these people, I would say this. Did it really work for you? I mean, the program that you were brought up on as an athlete, did it really work? I mean, were you really successful? Did you really take your, did your career really go as far as it should? Um, and did you really maximize your potential, right? How did your career end? A lot of times they won't tell you or they for, conveniently forget their career ended in injury. Uh, so, you know, and here they are applying everything, you know, that they went through to this, you know, generate the, the next generation of young athletes. Um, you know, anyways, so I, I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I am trying to tell you, you know, that, I mean, it's out there. It's, and it's, it's out there a lot. Um, a lot of this is very much for those of you who have studied damn past stuff or taken some a lot of the Alta stuff. A lot of this is very much like the contrast between the idea of base, traditional base, quote unquote, and damn past concept of work capacity, a base of what? The traditionalist thinking is really about, you know, it's more, you know, getting athletes you know, bigger, stronger, creating this, you know, a big volume base that they're going to shoot off of when they get older. You know, that's their way of preparation. It's all about uh, volume and effort and, and uh, you know, suffering and, and, you know, all of this, right? Um, although effort is obviously important. It's probably a poor choice of words on my part there. Whereas I look at it as, yeah, you need to create a base with a developmental athlete, but it's got to be a base of skill and speed. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to strength in a bit here. Um, yeah, it's really important, but it's just got to be done the right way. My athletes back in the day, the ones that were successful as juniors and, you know, I had a number of athletes that won medals at World Junior Champs and they went on to win athlete or win medals at major international champs with other coaches, which by the way, is a really rare thing, okay? That does not happen a lot for this exact reason, okay? My guys lifted a ton. Uh, well, I don't mean ton in terms of weight. I mean, they lifted. It was a huge part of our program. It's just We just did it in a different way than I tend to see here and I've seen in Canada and in the U.S. But, I, but because I'm... I'm back, uh, you know, I'm in a more, uh, you know, a, a, a bigger community in the high school system here. It's, you know, it's really jumped out at me. And it's, and this is my point I'm trying to get to here. And all of this is becoming clearer and clearer to me that the ugly fact here is that early on, you're going to come to a fork in a road with an athlete. Okay, a talent when an athlete has talent. Well, you'll come to the fork in the road, I guess, with every athlete. But that fork, which path you go down, is 
you know, it's really important in terms of athletes with talent. Um, and at that fork, you know, you, you have to decide, are we going down this path or are we going down that path? Because once you go down the path of traditionalism in, in its negative sense, it's very hard to pull an athlete out of that, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally. And this is because of two reasons. The first is what Stu said in an earlier podcast, um, which to me is one of the most enlightening points he's ever made uh, when, I've when I've been talking to him. I'm just kidding. But I think it was just this is a brilliant point is that, you know, athletes will be attached to whatever programming they first got successful with. If they've begun for example, using maximal strength training at the age of 14 years old, they're lifting a lot of heavy weights and, you know, they're kicking everyone's ass around them. Well, then they're going to think that this is the secret to success. Why would they think otherwise? This is, and it's, this is all complicated as well by the fact that because young athletes have such a high trainability, as I've said a hundred times before, they'll improve regardless of what type of programming they're doing outside of the most abusive extremes but they'll pay for it later on um and and this goes both ways so athletes that come from good quality programs and enter into more traditionalism if say if they go to college or at a higher level in whatever environment that's in um and yeah that does happen it does exist those athletes will struggle with that because they've been taught you know a certain way and now all of a sudden they find themselves up against an an opposite approach. John O'Malley talked about this in my in my chat with him. Um, the second reason it's hard to pull them back from the traditional path. Well, it's not really a second reason. It's more of an extension of the first reason. But is that once they begin this intensive training or overly intensive training, um, that is, say, early specialized or over specialized. And remember, specialized training is not a bad thing. It just has to be planned out properly. But once they start that, then it's hard to remove that type of training from an athlete's program because often it is working for them. There are a lot of coaches that employ these, you know, these traditionalist methods and, and they, they actually do it well. It's just not the, not the most effective. It's not the most appropriate type of work. Uh, it is working for the athlete. They are getting better. You know, a lot of there's, you know, there's a lot of young athletes. They're very robust. They can take a lot. They to some to a large degree. There's always a point where they can't take it anymore. But to a large degree, they can take it. They will improve on it, um, but they won't realize that there's a cost to it until much later, if at all. Um, like like you know, their coach, as I was describing earlier, they just they're just uh, they're just uh, oblivious to the fact that you know they it, things could have been better. So if you remove this, it just might actually cause a drop in form or performance, of course, because if they've been doing a bunch of specialized work and you go ahead and you remove it for the right quote unquote reasons, um, then it's just going to reinforce reinforce the first point I made, and this is what you're fighting against. So to me, the critical element here is talent identification. You got to figure out who, which are going to go down one path and which are going to go down the other. 
And I say this because while there may be many programs out there where the coaches are, quote, bending the rules, unquote, and we I've talked about this in other podcasts and in some of the presentations on my site, but um, in a well-meaning effort to provide opportunities for athletes that may not go, go the distance or going to go to the Olympics, but, you know, um, or or say having to reach certain, these are athletes that have to reach certain milestones to get a scholarship for an athlete. It's going to make a big difference in their life. I'm not against that. But you also have a responsibility to recognize real talent when it comes along and make sure that you do the right thing so that that talent has an opportunity to realize itself. I don't think anybody's going to argue with me on that point. So you better be able to recognize real talent when you see it and you hopefully you're going to be objective about it and that's not so easy so talent identification now talent identification in any sport basically comes down to two things number one is identifying the physical mental and emotional potential in any athlete the last few there are the mental and emotional can be tricky and we'll talk about that in a minute. And two, making sure the right athletes get into the right sports or events or whatever it is, however your sport is, you know, positions or whatever. The first is relatively straightforward, and we're going to talk about that. The second isn't so much. So if you're listening to this and you're a coach from a sport outside of track and field, then you're probably going to have to do some internal translating here because some of the things that, you know, may not apply completely to you, but you know, you'll be able to do that. And the, I, I think the points I'm going to make are still going to hold true. And also right off the bat here, I should say that us having, and this is important, us having a discussion about talent identification and developing real talent does not imply that the only athletes that you're ever going to search for or work with are talented ones. That is ridiculous. And it's a notion that I see many developmental coaches fall prey to. Not, not so much here in the U.S., but I used to see that a lot in Canada. Now, I don't know about your sport, but in mine, we need as many athletes as we can get because although very few are ever going to make it to a very high level successfully, we also need coaches and we need supporters and we need builders and we need people that enjoy the sport. We need spectators. So we all have a responsibility. And this may sound a little airy-fairy, but we all have a responsibility to develop anyone who comes along that wants to participate to the best of their ability. And we need to produce them to the best of our ability so that down the road, we have the right people around to ensure that the sport grows and maintains a healthy uh, you know, maintains a healthy development in and of itself. And it's also in your best interest as a coach. So I'm going to tell you a little story here. And again, it goes back to Dan Paff. And, you know, I talk about Dan all the time. He was a big influence on me, still is to this day. But back, my first big stud athlete uh, was an athlete named Shane Neamey. And uh, he was, uh, he was, very well coached by a, uh, a guy who's still coaching. I still talk to his name is Brent Jackson. He coaches at a private school in Vancouver these days. And him and I talk relatively uh, frequently. Um, and, you know, 
when I uh, took my first job in Kamloops, I, this, he was, Shane was 16 or 17, was in, fell into my lap, um, you know, and I could tell he had a lot of talent. We changed his event, got him into the 400. That wasn't necessarily the plan right off the bat, but he, he'd been very well prepared. And anyways, went on, went on to win a world junior bronze medal. For those of you that are track and field nuts, sprint nuts, you'll probably remember a name called Obi Moore, who was a young super phenom in the 400. Probably one of the biggest phenom, next to Steve Lewis could be the biggest phenom in the 400 that ever came, but was his talent was never realized. And I won't say why, I don't really know why, but I'm going to assume some of what we're talking about here was part of that. I don't know. Anyways, but when Obi Moore won the World Junior Champs, Shane came third. He was a bronze medalist. That was a big deal for us because in Canada at the time, I think we'd only had two athletes ever win, a, two or three athletes ever win a medal at World Junior Champs. So it was, it was kind of a big deal. I was very proud of that. Was, I was a young coach. I was very proud of that. And it was around that time that I was getting to know Dan quite well. He was, it was obvious he was going to become a mentor of mine and him and I were communicating. And I remember um, in the last podcast uh, with Matt, I was talking about Charles Poliquin and being, you know, in this, uh, in this course with Poliquin and I talked about my athlete winning the man. And that's when I found this is, this is the, this is the medal. This is the, this is the competition. And I remember, you know, I, I texted Dan or sent him an email. I think it was email. And I said, uh, you know, I said, oh yeah, you know, I, I, you know, oh God, he, he won this. I'm so happy. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and he replied to me and, and, you know, usually when Dan tells you to do something, it's usually in the, in the manner of, well, you know, when I, you know, when I do something, you know, when I have big success, I, you know, I always, you know, like this, that style, like, you know, he, he said, when I, when that happens to me, this is what I do. The, he didn't do this. This, this was a directive. Okay. <laughs> he said to me, this is what you need to do. Now what you need to do, you've had a huge success. You've had your first big success as a coach. Now what you need to do, you need to go back. You need to go back home and you need to start working again with the younger ones. You need to work with the athletes with less talent and you need to ground yourself. Now, maybe I was, you know, I don't know, maybe I was being so arrogant he thought I needed that, but I don't think really that was the case. I think he was trying to, he was just, well, that could easily have been the case. But anyways, um, I think what he was doing was he was, you know, it's obvious what he was doing. He was saying to me, he was saying, look, you know, you know, you need to go back. You need to work with those less talented. You need to remember, you know, what this is about and why you're doing this, you know. And he said a lot of nice things about what I had done with this with Shane and that. And so, you know, um, anyways, I wanted to share that story with you because I think, you know, that idea of, uh, you know, making sure that you spread yourself across all levels of talent that you don't just only seek out and work with the most talented athletes. I think that's super, super important. And I think that's going to apply to just about any sport. So I mentioned, you know, the, the two parts of talent, you know, you got to identify the physical talent. You got to make sure that the right athletes get into the right sports or events. And my sport is getting into the right events. We'll go through that in a minute. Before we talk about that though, I just want to have a quick talk about what is talent? Okay. Like what is it? And you may think you know what it is, or you may have an idea. Um, and I'm sure that there's, you're right. Or there's a lot of truth to that. But from someone that's worked 
along this entire spectrum, I'll just give you some thoughts. Number one, talent trumps everything. Okay, you got to understand that. It's, you know, it's a reason we can't make everything completely fair. And it's the main reason that someone has to win and someone has to lose. Because the reality is, is that the, you know, there are people out there that are so talented that they just, they can just steamroll over just about anything that gets in their way. And then of course, there's those that are never going to win anything and, you know, at the other end, and then there's everything in between. Okay. But the somewhat ugly truth in sport is that the right talent and it, and it depends on the sport. Now, remember, I come from track and field where physical talent is the, by far the biggest part factor in this whole equation. Um, but the somewhat ugly truth is that, you know, the right talent can override just about anything. It can override bad coaching, bad development. And yeah, I'm going to say it, and a lot of people are going <laughs> to disagree with me on this. It can even override drugs. You know, there are athletes out there that are so ungodly gifted that they can beat even the drugged out athletes, whoever they are, wherever they're from. It's true. I know because I've seen it. Okay, I'm not going to elaborate on that. If you want to argue with me about that, send me an email <laughs> or tweet it out, and we'll go and we'll go toe to toe on that. I'm sure Stu would love to jump in on that one, on that conversation. So, anyways, um, okay. Next thing, like, do you need a system for talent ID? Yeah, you absolutely do. But it's 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 an irrelevant question to me because we already have one, and. I, I, in the past, have been very critical of these crazy programs that we try to identify talent with, at least in my sport. Now, in some sports, it's absolutely critical, okay? In, in some sports, you got to have these, you know, you got to have someone helping you out there that is trying to find talent, um, and, and it does work well. But in my sport, um, you know, we have the best talent ID system. Americans have the best talent ID system in the world. It's called their high school system. And they, one thing they do really well is they have, they have, generally speaking, great high school programs. They're allowed to pay their high school coaches. That is your talent ID as long as, um, you know, those coaches know what to look for. And we're going to get into this in a minute, okay? You know, I'm also, I'm, sorry, I'm going to tell another story. I'm reminded of a story that when it comes to talent ID programs, Dr. Bonderchuk, I've talked about before. Um, we early on when he was in Canada, we brought him up to to do a conference that we held in Edmonton. And I remember we were doing a roundtable, and he couldn't barely he could barely speak English. He could still barely speak English. It's a lot better now, but back then it was very little. So we had a translator working with him, and I was, you know, he he's doing this question and answer, and there's a whole group of coaches in this room, and they're asking him questions. And I remember I was sitting up there beside him with the translator trying to help out the best I could. And I, I remember who it was, too. It was John Nagata, uh, a good friend of mine who is, uh, who, uh, oh, by the way, who, uh, you know, was instrumental, I believe, in, in, in uh, his work with uh, Krauser because um, he's the head coach, throws coach in, in, uh, in uh, Chula Vista, which is a training uh, a big training um, center in San Diego, pardon me. 
has a lot of great athletes down there. Anyways, John, uh, younger coach at the time, was uh, I think he was still working uh, in Santa Barbara as a throws coach. Anyways, puts up his hand and he says, uh, you know, can, can you tell us something about, you know, your the, the, the system for talent identification that you had in the Soviet Union, you know? And, and so the you know, that's the question. The translator says it to Dr. B and Dr. B kind of looks down, he kind of smiles and he goes yes he goes it was very simple we had a very good system it was very uh, very systematic he says uh or something like that he goes it, w- it went like this if you could run fast we put you in the sprints if you could throw far we made you a thrower and if you could jump far or high then we made you a jumper and of course the whole room laughs and he said yeah that was that was it <laughs> Anyways, uh, but uh, it talent, you know, it's it's a market system for sure, but it hinges on the ability of coaches to be able to actually recognize talent in an objective sense, rather than seeing what they want to see or guiding talent in the direction that suits their needs. So I don't know about your sport, but in my sport, you know, the range, I mean, you have jumps coaches, you have throws coaches, you have sprint coaches, you have endurance coaches, and you have specialists even in within those, okay? Um, So, you know, the endurance coaches are going to see all talent as potential endurance talent. Throws the same, you know, on and on. I mean, with, you know, outside of crazy extremes, right? But, you know, so anyways, this brings us back to our two points that I want to talk about. Number one is identifying, actually identifying the physical talent, which is actually, in a, for most sports, it's actually quite simple. And I'm, I'm just going to present this in a very, very simple way. Okay, at least and this, this is kind of how I see it in my head. And granted, I'm biased because I'm mainly a speed power coach, but I have coach endurance athletes, okay? So I'd look at it this way. Imagine you have three continuums, okay? The first continuum, and and these continuums, you know, look at them as, uh, you know, horizontal lines, okay? And they're stacked above each other. The one at the top is speed, okay? And that's largely determined by fiber type, okay? And your nervous system that you were born with, okay? You can't do much about that. You can enhance it a little bit, but you can't do, you know, you, you can negatively impact it very easily. We... But you can't really, you know, you can't make the slowest person in the world into the fastest person in the world by training. It's just not going to happen, okay? So that continuum sits on a, you know, let's say on the left you have slow and on the right you have fast, okay? And it's good. It's largely determined by fiber type, whether you have the, your proportion of slow and fast wires. And it can get way more, more sophisticated than that. And Matt and I will talk about that in the next podcast that he's on. But generally speaking, that's the continuum. Okay, you're either fast or you're slow. Um, the next one down is going to be your size or your anthropometrics. Okay, so by that I mean lever length. Are you tall and do you have long arms and long legs? So you're either going to be short, short levers on the left, or you're going to be tall with long levers on the right. Okay, and now that one, of course can be very sport specific but generally speaking if you look at most sports speed power sports anyways or, and endurance sports in terms of 
you know, uh, success is highly dependent upon your your ability to apply force, especially over a short time period. That's called it's called uh, power. Okay. Um, then, you know, having speed with longer levers, you're, you're just going to be able to do it better. Okay. All right. Uh, and again, there are a lot of exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you know, we, we, we can, we can say that. And then below that, you then you got skill, which is coordination. Okay. So on the left, you're going to talk about low coordination and on the right, it's going to be represented by high coordination. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people might call this uh, athleticism, although that term can also encompass all of everything I'm talking about here. But let's just say, you know, you're either coordinated or you're not coordinated. You either learn skills quickly or you don't. You can influence that to a large, semi-large degree. Uh, you, you know, you can't do much about your size unless you, you know, unless you, uh, you know, you, you, you're a big, tall person, you eat yourself into uh, obesity and then you can't, you know, then you're useless. But, you know, you can't really do much about size. You can't really do much about speed uh, in terms of, you know, so you're largely born with that. And skill, you can influence a little bit more, be, although it's still highly, you know, you're born with, uh, you know, your ability to learn um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, execute movements, you know, your coordination, a lot of that is inherent, but it can be also developed to a high, high degree in certain cases. And, you know, with the right development as a kid, a lot, you know, a wide movement experience is what we call it. You can really do a lot with it. Okay. These three things are not like strength and endurance, which are super highly trainable. Okay. So we're not going to talk about those, but Talent identification in a nutshell, you know, these are the three things that you're generally going to look for, okay? And, you know, um, in certain sports, maybe certain endurance coaches will look for other things. Uh, uh, gymnast, gymnastics coach is going to look, obviously look for something a little bit different, particularly in the lever length, okay? Uh, but generally speaking, these are the things, right? So the more you are to the right on these continuums in all three, Generally speaking, the more talent you're talking about, right? And this is what we look for. We want to find fast, tall, very coordinated kids. You got that, you got a talent, okay? Now, we haven't talked about the mental aspects of it, but there's really, you know, to me, I'm not going to talk a lot about that because really when we talk about talent identification, I mean, an athlete not, um, not having a lot of the mental skills required to compete at a high level or being able to compete at all you know i'm, I'm not going to not coach them because of that right that may end the coaching you know they may leave the sport early because of that they can't cope or whatever it is but it's not going to stop me as a coach from taking them on so and that's kind of the context i'm talking about all this in so you know that's something a bit different and a lot of people have opinions about that about the emotional and psychological talent uh we you know whether you're you know we all say oh yeah you can't you can't teach that yeah you can in a lot of ways in a lot of aspects and sometimes athletes just come to the table with it and i've you know i've seen athletes uh I've had, you know, I mean, the, the, the girl, the hammer girl, I coached from Britain, Sophie Hitchens, I mean, she was a, just a goddamn assassin right from the beginning. She could, you know, 
She just knew how to compete, man. She just could do it. It was just in her. Uh, maybe she learned that somewhere along the way. I did, I certainly didn't teach it to her. She had it, uh, but I certainly didn't screw with it. <laughs> I knew better. Um, I, the endurance athlete uh, that I coached or ended up becoming an endurance athlete, Gary Ree, he was in different ways similar. He he knew how to compete. He there were there were parts there were elements of competition um and his event that he just could he could deal with way better than the average person one of them was was you know he could i remember his uh, high performance coach win gimitrasi told me one day just you know and i completely concurred with this was he said you know he's just got this ability to run into pain like just to like discomfort he could just he could just handle it more than any other athlete and i can guarantee it nobody taught him that really i mean we may have enhanced him enhanced that a little bit maybe i did a bit maybe winded a bit but i mean he came to the table with that as well so anyways the but a lot of these things can also be enhanced taught yada 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 I'm going to come back to this in a moment, okay? So the other, um, you know, the other point here is making sure the right athletes get in the right sports. Uh, and I'll use my sport again as an example, which is really track and field is a sport made up of a bunch of different sports, right? Throws, jumps, sprints, endurance. Um, this is far less considered. In my, in my opinion, I think a lot of people in uh, coaches across the board in all different sports, you know, uh, if, if you've been around long enough, you start to learn what talent is and you know a talent when you see it. OK, one of the problems that we have in our sport is that coaches specialize too early in terms of their coaching ability. They want to be a throws coach uh, early on and do and focus on that and do that. And that's there's really nothing wrong with that. But. I'll, I'll just give you my own experience from this to sort of, you know, I uh, to sort of make a point. And the point is, is that, um, you know, the reasons why this this is less considered is usually a lack of leadership and a lack of generalism amongst coaches. Okay, which is what I'm getting to. So for me, when I was a younger athlete, or when I was a younger coach, and I started my job in Kansas, and I think I, I may have told this story before, so pardon if I didn't, and I'll keep it short. But you know, I basically was the only coach in this small town with a small club. Okay, and I, but I was a decathlete as an athlete, so I was the. In fact, the ironic thing was the only event I really had never done or coached in my career at that point was the hammer. Uh, and I'm no more as a hammer specialist now than 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 anything else. Although I coach, I will and continue to coach anything. Um, but I knew enough when I was a young coach that I had, you know, the talent pool was super small in this small town. Right? There's, they didn't have a lot of athletes. So had I have only been a throws coach and tried to make everyone a thrower, well, then I only would have had one success story there. But what I did was, uh, generally speaking, in the club, I had a few, you know, I really, they weren't so much rules, but they were principles that athletes in the club, I re we really encouraged them to do all the different events in track. And if an athlete really kind of like, you know, took to the sport and got into it in high school, I we, in, in my province, uh, in Canada, we had a high school decathlon and anybody could do it. So I would have them do that 
at, you know, I had Dylan Armstrong, who ended up being a shot putter, had him do it in grade 10, okay? And I knew he was going to be a throw, but I had him do it anyways. And But with, I had Gary Reed do it. And we didn't know what Gary was Gary was going to be. And Shane Neamey, the first athlete, the 400-meter runner I discussed earlier, we didn't know what he was going to be. He was a jumper when I got him. But when he did the decathlon, you know, and so we, you know, for this period leading into this, he would train for all the events. He broke the or almost broke the our our provincial high school record in the 400 meters in that decathlon it's the first time he ever ran the 400 so obviously you know and i had a feeling that was going to happen uh you know uh, there you go right so being a generalist really has worked well for me as a coach i interviewed don babbitt okay uh on this podcast earlier and don is a you know i i titled it uh, uh, the the throws general ist okay ist being in brackets because Don is you know he's a he's he's a world class coach in all of the four throwing events and that's rare that's hard to find you you know there are not a lot I mean typically uh, in the U S they're better than most other countries, of course, but typically throws coaches will specialize in one event, or if they, if they don't, they'll do the shot and discus javelin is usually of course separate because it's very different than, and hammer. And sometimes they'll specialize in hammer, but Don coaches all four. And when you look at his success story as a coach, it's just like, if he was only a shot put coach, well, you'd only be talking probably about a handful of athletes and all of which, and you know, all of which that's, it's, I I don't say that in any sort of negative way. I mean, he's coached, God, I don't know how many world-class shot putters. I mean, two, everybody talks about, but but he's also coached like, uh, uh, I I think, um, you know, world-class javelin throwers, one guy who holds American record. Uh, I don't know if he's, I think he still lives. hammer throwers, you know, on and on and on. So, I think at the at the develop and you know and this guy is at the world class level and NCAA level. But for a development coach, I think it's really important that they they are able to rather than take talent and make them fit into what they coach, they need to fit their coaching into whatever ha- talent they have around them. It just makes for I mean, you know, it just makes sense if you want to be successful. I mean, now in the U.S., you know, there's so much talent, and the populations typically are so big that you know you you can specialize as a development coach. But to me, I would I would say it's probably it's probably better to go down the generalist route generalist route if you can. Okay, so. Now I want to talk a little bit about, just go back and talk a little bit about the mental or emotional components. I'm not talking so much about talent ID here, but I'm talking about desire. So, you know, we just talked about getting the athletes into the right uh, sports and right events or whatever it is. Um, you know, so much of this has to do with success. And I, it's imp- I, I always try to make this point when I'm, because people misinterpret the message here so often you know i'm all about success i'm all about winning i love it okay (laughs) i do i love it um but there's a way to do it there's a way to do it that where everybody benefits in the long term okay and so much of that is tied into maintaining a long-term desire 
or love for what they're doing. And this goes. Uh, this is a message directly to coaches, developmental coaches, and parents. So, you know, with parents, it's obvious. You know, you got to find ways to, you know, get them into the right. I said this in the sport parent course. You know, get them in the right environment and get the fuck out of the way. Okay, let the coach do. Let the coach do his or her job. All right. With coaches, it's about. It's about, you know, that's, it's more complicated because you're trying to create, I mean, if you really want to do it right, you're, you're trying to create an environment that is going to prepare them, but you also want to be successful. And in some of these environments here in the U.S., and some, somewhat in Canada and Britain too, that in my experience, it's not easy to do because if everybody around you is early specializing, well, that's difficult, okay? But, you know, there's ways to do it. And so, my point is this, is that none of this works if there's no success. Nobody wants to get their head beaten in all the time, you know, and get, or get their head crushed in by competition day in and day out just because you're afraid to over-specialize with an athlete or, or you know, employ some kind of training method. So you got to find that balance, okay? And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to give out a message here that, you know, everybody's over-training or anything like that. It's just kind of be done in a systematic, proper, intelligent manner, okay? Um, you know, it's important also to understand that while there's times when a talented young athlete has to be held back for their own good, you know, like I just said, you, you have to make sure that the program's not totally airy-fairy and, and it's driven towards performance, um, you know, it's, you know, you, so that's going to require preparation you got to think about these things and you got to plan it out uh but the reality too is that if they're truly talented this usually isn't a problem because their level of talent with some athletes is sometimes so great that they can beat everyone at a young age whether they're even training or not i mean that's it's true um you know anyways um so you know Developmental coaches have to um, foster an outlook in the athlete that that you know improvement is 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 success as well as a love for the pro uh, a love for the process. Um, and Americans actually do this quite well because the, you know they 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 really build these team aspects into uh, into their programs, and this really helps. Uh, and in sports like mine, that's not, which is an individual sport, that's not so easy to do. That's an art form, right? My high school coach in Canada was one of the greatest I've ever seen doing this. He was just, I mean, everything was about the team. We were all individuals. Everything was, you know, was always about the team. And anybody that was on the team always felt like they were part of something special. The guy was incredible. His name's Ken Taylor. Uh, where did he go to college? In the U.S., Okay. So anyways, I'm not sure if that last point there was totally relevant to the whole discussion. I think it was, but you know, I had to say it. So next thing, and we're almost done here. So you have talent, then what? I'm not going to go through a big thing on how to develop talent here. That's not, uh, that's not my point, but, um, so if you have a talent, if you if you have decided that okay, I got somebody here that I'm maybe I'm not sure exactly what event they're 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 going to be good or what's you know what position or whatever the subgroup is in your sport, but they got talent. They 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 could do something here. So then what? And 
you know, and this, this may not be all that different than what you would do with all your athletes outside of bending the rules for those, you know, trying to get scholarships that are not going to go on like we discussed. But so really there's three things. Number one, you got to develop technique. Okay. And you got to develop technique and you got to preserve their speed qualities, develop and preserve their speed qualities as best you can. Um, and for endurance coaches, that's tricky. Okay. Because endurance, young endurance athletes, you know, there's debates about this, but you know, they're going to, you know, you want them to be successful. They're going to have to train like endurance runners, but doing that and in a quality way, and I'm going to talk to John O'Malley more about this, doing that in a quality way is not easy. Okay. It's not easy. The easy thing is, is as an endurance coach is go to beat the shit out of everybody with a ton of volume, especially if you got a high volume program in terms of athletes, like a, a lot of numbers. And then, you know, we, we, I think we talked about that. Um, but that's number one, develop the technique and speed. That's what it's got to be about. Number two, bulletproof them physically and mentally. Okay. You got to prepare them for what's going to come down the road. We'll talk about that in detail, a little more detail in a second. Number three, you got to preserve their trainability. Okay. And I've talked lots about that. I'll just touch on that a bit. So back to the technique. Technique, simple. Find the most important technical aspects or element and try to develop those in my sport, every event has them, okay? They are, there's one or two or maybe even three key technical foundational elements that you really want to work on rather than getting lost in the weeds technically on things that don't matter so much or that can be cleaned up or refined later on, maybe if they're in college or something like that, okay? I won't elaborate on that. I think you get the point. Number two, very important, use progressions. Use progressions to develop the technique. Something I don't actually see a lot here. I have a great video on my site by Nick Garcia, who is the best at this. Uh, my, he, he's got a podcast coming up on here. Um, you know, he, had, he is so systematic in his approach to developing his throwers. It's incredible. Really quite impressive. Second point, bulletproofing. What does this mean? Well, it means that you're preparing the body and mind for what is to come down the road. So I talked, you know, I'm not going to go too on about this, but I am going to focus in on one particular element. Uh, often this is more about what you don't do rather than what you do do. Okay. So, um, you know, what that means is, you know, certain things you're going to want to stay away from. Um, and I just, you know, in terms of their mind, it's very simple. I just spoke about it. Don't kill their desire. Don't crush them so much that they don't want to come back. Don't, you know, and this has been a challenge of mine. Don't be so much of an asshole all the time that the kids, you know, they, they, it's no fun to be on your team. In terms of the body, have progressions in speed, strength, uh, power, whatever it is, you know, technique. Have progressions, okay? But particularly in strength because strength and, and endurance because strength and endurance are the two most uh, easily abused abilities when it comes to training a young athlete okay so just some basic thoughts on strength okay uh, first and foremost understand that the younger you are the more strength development is going to come from the actual sport activity itself second Understand the different movement planes and develop a program that is comprehensive in that sense. I've talked a lot about these points in other podcasts and in some of the stuff on my site, so I'm not going to elaborate on it. Number three, 
this is one I probably haven't mentioned too often. Start from the core and work out. Start with, you know, you start developing strength in the, you know, you can develop over the whole body, but you really got to focus in on the, on the core and get that strong and then work your way out to the extremities. Uh, yeah, number four, teach proper technique, course, that's a given. Uh, although it's amazing what you see in a weight room these days. Oh my God. Um, but once that, this is the key secondary point here. Once that's in place, you got to move the resistance with full intent. Okay. That means uh, maximal speed. It may not look like maximal speed, but it's got to be as fast as it can once the technique is in place. Okay. Uh, or almost as fast. You don't want to be doing long, slow repetitions unless, you know, th there are certain aspects to strength training, more higher end, um, um, more higher end uh, approaches that you know later on that will require that but even then they're still moving with full intent usually uh number what am i at number five and this is a big one with me that i very rarely see develop stabilizers before you develop prime movers so what does that mean a lot of your early lifting should be on one leg okay or contralateral one leg or one leg to the other the more that you are in a squat stance the younger the athlete is the more you're developing prime movers which is great because they're going to get stronger but early on they got to develop those stabilizers which that's a super key important point uh and here's one that's the last my last point here is you know uh, use bar speed where possible as opposed to 1RM. You don't need to be doing one repetition maximums with young athletes. There's just never been a need to do that. And for those who really feel like you want to work off percentages, I totally get that and I get where you're coming from with that. There's no need to anymore because we have technology out there that can determine the loading you need using bar speed. Okay, so look into it. Um. And lastly, preserve their trainability. You know, just use progressions. Use progressions. You just sit down one day and figure it out. It's not difficult. It's really not difficult. I mean, you can, you know, you sit down, you, you, you write out the different age groups or classes, and you just say, okay, in this element strength, I want, I'm going to do this here, this here, and then. Pick up a book if you don't, if you don't understand what that means, okay? Um, yeah, so anyways, I'm done. That's my rant and my rant. hour and a half. I thought it would, I was going to try to get that under an hour, but yeah, hour and a half. Anyways, that is my rant on talent ID and uh, yeah, all of that. So um, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I don't really have too much more to say. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. And thanks to everybody for the feedback uh, that's been coming. I really appreciate it. Um, if you got any questions, uh, let me know. All right. Take care.